square. Good guess, but wrong. <laughs> Clear your head. All right. Tell me what you think it is. Is it a star? It is a star. <laughs> Very good. That's great. Okay. All right. Think hard. What is it? Circle. Close. But definitely wrong. Okay. All right. Ready? Yeah. All right. What is it? Figure eight. Incredible. That's five for five. You can't see these, can no, you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear. They're just coming to me. <laughs> okay. Nervous? Yes. I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. Okay? What's this one? It's a couple of wavy lines. Sorry. This isn't your lucky day. I <laughs> know. Um, get a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off. Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, mister. You want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. All right. The lady vanishes. When the woman came out of the mist, Leonard Parsons stamped on the brakes as fear laid a cool finger on his heart. The dark, the dark fog pressed on the windshield and there was a stifling chill in the air. Every instinct told him to drive on but he drew his car onto the grass shoulder and cautiously opened the door. When he switched off the engine, the night was unnaturally still. Then he heard a footstep in the mist. He knew instinctively that he should get away from this lonely Yorkshire lane, and yet something held him back. He wondered where the woman had gone, and if she was a fellow motorist stranded in the fog, which had 
clamp down on Yorkshire's West Riding that January night in 1949. Yet she had disappeared. He stayed in his car for another five min minutes, wondering whether to leave the car and search for the woman. Eventually he decided against it and drove on. At that moment, the woman appeared again through the billowing fog and he had another stab of apprehension. But he fought it back and he opened the window. Can I give you a lift, he asked. That's very kind of you, the woman replied. She climbed in beside him and Parsons pulled away from the shoulder and set off slowly through the fog. It's a terrible night, the woman said. I've been to visit my sister. My husband was supposed to meet me with the car, but he's obviously been held up in the fog. By the light of the dashboard dials, Parsons could see that she was about 40, tall and with light brown hair drawn away from her face. It was a kind, homely face, and he couldn't imagine why he felt afraid. Yet he still felt a curious chill and uncertainty. The woman said her name was Marston and that she lived in a village a few miles from his destination. She said she had two daughters and a son who was in the army. Parsons told her that he was a brewery foreman and was driving to look over a house he contemplated buying for his mother. They drove in silence and eventually the woman asked Parsons to drop her off at the corner of a lane leading to a village. She said it was only a short walk and she didn't want him to drive out of his way on such a dreadful night. He watched her cross the road in a report prepared six years later for the British Society of Psychical Research, Parsons wrote, I saw her pass under a street lamp on the corner and turn up towards the village. There seemed nothing unusual about her. She just seemed an ordinary sort of country woman who had been caught in the fog. But his impression was short-lived. When he mentioned to the owner of the house he was visiting that he had given a lift to a woman named Marsden on the Morley Road outside of the village of Kibworth, the man gave him a curious glance and couldn't get him off the premises fast enough. When he was called for a glass of beer at a nearby pub while waiting for the fog to lift, he mentioned the woman again and got another set of strange glances. No one, it seemed, wanted to talk about Mrs. Marston. And Parsons, who wasn't particularly interested in whatever it was that had obviously made for the neighborhood's scarlet woman, forgot about the matter and drove home. <clears throat> Five months later, the incident of a woman in the fog suddenly splashed out of his subconscious and brought back the strange, chilled feeling he had experienced that night on Morley Road. He was idly glancing at the in-memoriam notices at the local evening newspaper when he caught sight of the name Evelyn Marson and an address in Kibworth. Was it a relation, her mother perhaps? The date of death was January 1948. Leonard Parsons had no reason to be in Kibworth district again until summer of 1951. And when he went, he was sent to supervise the modernization of a hotel in the next village. He described what happened in his report to the SPR. Suddenly the name struck a chord in my memory and I asked the landlord if he knew the woman called Marston. 
he said he had, and that she had passed away some years ago in a rather tragic circumstances. I asked how long this was, and he replied that it must be at least four years. I said this was impossible. I had given her a lift one night in the fog not much more than three years ago. He went very quiet at that and obviously didn't want to discuss the matter anymore. When I pressed him, he said there were some funny tales going around and he didn't want to say anything else about it. A few weeks later, Leonard Parsons, his curiosity now thoroughly aroused, drove into Leeds and spent an afternoon among the 1948 files of the evening newspaper. He didn't need to look long. On January 10th, 1948, the paper contained a report of an inquest on Miss Evelyn Smarsons killed while waiting for her husband to pick her up in his car near her sister's house on Morley Road. It was a foggy night and Mrs. Mrs. Marston has, had obviously been knocked down by a passing vehicle which failed to stop. It was a year ago to the day when I picked her up at, a very, at the very spot that she met her death, Leonard Parsons wrote in his report. I have seen photographs of her since and I would stake my life on the fact that it was the same woman. So how it happened, I only know that it did. And I know that if it had occurred to anyone else, I would not have believed a single word of it. Vanishing hitchhikers. <laughs> <laughs> That was a long one. Sorry. I love it. <laughs> All right. Uh, this is from uh, one of Robert Anton Wilson's uh, books. It's like a book mm -hmm. of articles. Um, Email from the Universe was the name of it. Okay. And this one's called La Bella. Dom Sands Mercy, which is uh, something like Belladonna Has No Mercy. Okay. <laughs> the four weirdest and scariest drug stories I know all involve Belladonna, a chemical mm -hmm. for which I now have the same sincere respect as I have for hungry tigers, earthquakes, floods, wildfires, the IRS, and Dr. Hannibal Lecter. The first story I'll tell you comes from a younger friend, then a 1960s dropout hippie freak, but now in 2004, a PhD in sociology. He tried Belladonna around 1965 under the impression that it had much the same effect as LSD. When he immediately went into toxic convulsions, friends rushed him to a hospital where the ER staff pumped out his stomach probably saving his life, but a bit too late to save him from delirium mm. since the belladonna had already entered his bloodstream. <clears throat> when he returned to what seemed normal consciousness, he found himself in a hospital bed surrounded by people in other beds with different ailments. Then a beautiful blonde nurse with great big hooters entered the ward <clears throat> accompanied by an old-style New Orleans jazz band. <clears throat> As my friend watched entranced, the nurse proceeded to perform a classic striptease dance with plenty <laughs> of tantalizing teas, 
but eventually total nudity, followed by even more bumps and grinds. The music seemed louder and raunchier than any jazz he had ever heard and came to a wild Dionysian climax when the naked nurse crawled into bed with a delighted patient <laughs> and proceeded to make love to him loudly and frequently in more ways than a dozen porn stars. <laughs> My friend never once suspected that this might be a, a hallucination, <laughs> nor did it seem an unusually innovative medical procedure. <laughs> you don't ask philosophic or ontological questions during a belladonna journey the way you usually do on real psychedelics. He only began to wonder if any of that sex stuff really happened the following morning. And that's his whole, that's this whole story. Belladonna erases a great deal of your memory of what you saw during the trip. He might've had dozens of other visions that night, but all he ever remembered was the nurse from Mitchell brothers clinic for the horrendously horny. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I would have remembered her too. The second more perplexing yarn comes from another 1960s veteran, but I lost touch with him and have no idea how his life worked out. He told me he took Belladonna in his dorm room at the college he attended and then waited for psychedelic fireworks and transcendental experiences. Nothing happened for a while. Then his friend Joe entered the room and asked what he was doing. He told Joe about the belladonna and said he was waiting to fill an effect. Joe asked him something, but he didn't quite hear it. Then his friend Joe entered the room and asked what he was doing. He told Joe about the belladonna and said he was waiting to fill an effect. Joe asked him something, but he got distracted by having two Joes in the room. (laughs) Tried to explain about the two Joes, but then one of them vanished. He tried to tell Joe, hey, you came in here before you came in, but his tongue seemed unable to function, and he thought he was merely grunting like a hog. (laughs) Then his friend Joe entered the room, and this time he got the fear. He fled the room in the dorm and hopped on his motorcycle to get away, speeding across the campus and down the nearest highway as fast as he could gunner. He didn't even own a motorcycle. I often wonder what the other people on campus and on the highway thought they saw when he went racing past them on his phantom bike. (laughs) Medieval witches used belladonna in their brews, and some scholars think that's why they believe they could fly through the sky on broomsticks. Modern witches, at least the ones I've known, prudently substitute the kinder, gentler cannabis. Mm -hmm. The next morning, my friend returned to consensus reality and found himself in a ditch several miles from campus. He had no bumps or bruises and nobody else's motorcycle either. But his right shoe and right sock had disappeared. He never did find them and never remembered any more of that night either. My longest yarn involves my own experience with Belladonna in 1962. What can I say about why I did it? I hadn't heard the above stories yet. I was young. I was a damned Egypt. And the guy who gave it to me said it was just like peyote. Let me explain that this happened on a farm in the deep woods. A few minutes after I took the stuff, drink it as a tea, actually. My wife, Arlen, developed a severe case of fangs and quickly turned into a beautiful, sexy, redheaded vampire with malice in her eyes. 
I immediately rushed to the kitchen sink, stuck a finger down my throat, and forced several painful bits of fits of vomiting. When I could vomit no more, I told her. She looked normal again for a moment. Beautiful, sexy, redheaded, but friendly, not vampirish. This is a bad trip, but I'll find my way back to you, I promise. Those were the last sane words I spoke for the next 12 <laughs> hours. I remember taking a long walk through a forest of magic green jewels with the Tin Woodsmen of Oz. Later the next day, it became clear that this was Jeff, a friend Arlen had phoned to help me through the emergency. He was walking me around our cabin thinking fresh air might help. I remember some dwarfs in Nazi uniforms trying to shove me into a furnace, literally as hot as hell. I never felt more terror in my life. Blank space. Memory loss. I remember thinking the worst was over and trying to tell Arlen and Jeff that some parts of it were quite good, really. I was lighting one cigarette after another, chain-smoking, I thought. Jeff and Arlen saw me striking the lighter repeatedly, but I never did have a cigarette in my mouth. I'm going to pause for a minute. That's one of the most unusual things mm-hmm. about people um, who take nightshade drugs. Uh-huh. It's a universal hallucination. They smoke phantom cigarettes. That's crazy. It's so bizarre. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of the most unusual things ever, uh, but it's almost <laughs> universal. Hashtag phantom cigarettes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I remember trying to explain something that I had discovered out there. Arlen wrote it down. The note said the literary critics will all have to be shot because of the Kennedy administration in outer space of the Nuremberg pickle that exploded. Not quite as good as the last words of Dutch Schultz, I'd say, but a bit better than what William James brought back from his nitrous oxide adventure. And what he said was, overall, there's a smell of fried onions. Around dawn, I had to go to the outhouse. Jeff accompanied me to make sure I didn't wander off into the pink dimension or get lost amid the buzzing and whistling things in the realm of thud. I opened the outhouse door and found Jeff already in there. I closed the door and told him, I can't go in. You're already in there. He persuaded me reasonably that he wasn't in there, but outside with me. So I opened the door again, found nobody inside and took a healthy crap. I felt even closer to normal when I came out, but then I noticed King Kong peeking at me over the top (laughs) of the trees. He seemed whimsical, whimsical and unthreatening, And when I looked again, he turned into just another tree. The next day, I moved slowly back into the ordinary world. And by evening, I felt well enough to go to a movie. Kurosawa's The Seventh Samurai. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the first half, especially the innovative technique of alternating between black and white and color. But in the second half, Toshiro Mafun's nose started growing like Pinocchio's, and I knew mm. I was hallucinating again, which vexed me a bit. <clears throat> no more flashbacks occurred for about a month, and then one day, all the people in the su- supermarket turned into iguanas. Oh, God. That only lasted a few seconds, and it was the last of the trip. I never tried this nefarious chemical again, and I hope to God you won't either. 
<clears throat> my last story I heard from novelist William S. Burroughs, who bought some, quote, morphine once that some wiseacre had cut with Belladonna. He never remembered anything of the experience, but a friend did. He said that at one point, William walked to the window, opened it, and stuck his leg out. What the fuck are you doing, the friend asked. Going down for some cigarettes, William replied. Oh, my God. The friend grabbed him and dragged him back into the room, which was on the third floor. Belladonna, by the way, means beautiful lady in Italian. Go figure. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Maybe a cigarette after. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. Always good stuff from him, right? Yeah, I love him. Treasure. <laughs> All right, let me give you another hitchhiker. Oh, yay. <laughs> Sasari, Sicily, 1973. Noticing the strange coldness of a girl who hitched a ride on his motorcycle, factory worker Luigi Torres lent her his overcoat. On reaching her house, he told her that he would collect it the next day. When he called to do so, he was shocked to learn his passenger had been dead for three years. On the girl's grave, Luigi found both a photo of the hitchhiker he had encountered the night before and his overcoat. And that's a classic one, right? The Yeah. You find them, your coat. Yeah. And then this one, let's see. Um, Griff now... Germany, 1975, a 43-year-old businessman picked up a weird-looking woman dressed in black who murmured that something evil would happen. When I looked next, she had vanished. Um, Peshawar, Pakistan, 1979, police motorcyclist Mahmoud Ali gave a lift to a pretty girl in white who vanished before reaching the destination to which she had asked to be taken. A photograph of a 20-year-old victim of a fatal road accident was found to match the hitchhiker eyelash by eyelash. There's so many. (laughs) And it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. I love that. There was one, the one in where I grew up in Jamestown, North Carolina. Is that the Lydia? Lydia. Yeah. Yeah. And, I didn't print that one. That's funny. See? Yeah. There's a I'm Lydia thinking. Bridge. Uh, it's by my old middle school. It's, uh, it's probably a quarter mile from my old middle school. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, a bridge that's out of commission. And they uh-huh. say they call that Lydia Bridge. Oh, see? <laughs> you grew up a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> I, um, I thought of this for this week. For some reason, you know how you have like these little weird, vague memories. Yeah. <laughs> that you don't know if they're true, but yeah. why would they not be true? Um, and I just remember being a kid. So it had to be like the 80s, early 80s. And I remember being a kid and I remember it would be a big deal to stay up late and watch David Letterman. Yeah. And I swear I did that at one point, and there was somebody talking about Phantom Hitchhikers. 
probably an author or something. Yeah. And that, that just the Phantom Hitchhiker story kind of stuck with me like that far back. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because I stayed up and watched Letterman. <laughs> wow. I wonder but I don't who know the guest true. was. <laughs> I don't it know. It could have been somebody like Brad Steiger or somebody. I know. Like I want to know. I have to find out if it's true. Yeah. So old people, early 80s, did Letterman have a somebody on talking Phantom Hitchhikers? Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you. I totally have memories like that and yeah. um, of flashes of movies or stuff. And most of the yeah. time I can find it, but there's a couple things like that that I haven't. That you've never had. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Uh, this is kind of interesting. I was. Uh, this is in the Bigfoot Files by Peter Gatilla, uh-huh. and I've been wondering, like, you know, as far as from what reading I've done about the UFO Bigfoot connection, uh, I kind of took it back. The uh, earliest. I um, have seen as 1972 and that's Stan Gordon in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. But this um, is um, around the same time on the West Coast. And this is from an interview with Peter Gatilla. Mm-hmm. Um, the interviewer says, I take the idea of a link between UFOs and Bigfoot wasn't very well received. <clears throat> Gatilla. That's putting it mildly. Some ufologists were objective about it and willing to look at all the data, but hardcore Bigfooters reacted with almost unanimous loathing. In their minds, any suggestion that UFOs played a role in the scenario was too freakish to be taken seriously. (laughs) Of course, these same stalwarts saw nothing freakish in devouring their lives to chasing hairy, screaming, sulfurous giants that can outrun horses at a full gallop and then vanish in the thin air. I found the double standard laughable and annoying. While people calling themselves researchers clamored over rocks and reels in search of a slavery new super ape, witnesses talking about UFOs and their Bigfoot sightings found themselves in a dead zone with only a handful of small town newspapers and a few UFO researchers willing to pay them any mind. The interviewer asked, didn't the first reports of Bigfoot originate from Northern California? Were there any UFOs reported in that area at the time? Gutilla, briefly, let me give some background. The modern Bigfoot controversy, modern meaning less than 40 years, was born in August of 1958 in the woods. A few dozen miles west of the little town of Orleans in Northern California's Del Norte County. A cat skinner, that's a guy who drives a bulldozer, named Jerry Crew found a string of barefoot man-like footprints near his tractor. Later on, more trucks were found, and in October 1958, a reporter from Eureka, California, interviewed Jerry Crew, and the rest is history. <clears throat> as for UFO reports, keep in mind, Northern California's Bigfoot County, as well as other regions of the Pacific Northwest, particularly Oregon and Washington, were hallowed lands to conventional Bigfoot hunters. 
ain't nothing but plain old hairy apes up there, they chorused with pride, but it wasn't so. UFOs in the air and on the ground were present in substantial numbers throughout the Pacific Northwest before, during, and after Jerry Crew's track find. All anyone needed to do was check the record. That is, interviews with local people, old newspaper clippings, and formal reports taken by early UFO organizations and researchers. In the 25 years I've been scuffing my shoes in Bigfoot County, I've heard hundreds of reports of UFOs ranging in description from structured craft to mysterious lights of every size, shape, color, magnitude, and duration. These have been seen on the ground, near the ground, high in the sky, and all points in between. There have been close encounters, occupant encounters, low-level flybys, hoverings, and so on. Be that as it may, one well-known Bigfooter and author was so convinced that UFOs played no part in the search that he virtually accused me of tampering with the reports, adding that nobody ever told him about UFOs in all the years he'd been on the track. My response to him was simple. Ask the right question, get the right answer. Mm-hmm. Whether from bias or ignorance or both, apesters never ask witnesses if anything else happened to them during the experience cycle. In at least half the cases I've looked into personally, Bigfoot witnesses or people living in or near sighting locations told of seeing UFOs in the vicinity before, during, or immediately after the experience. Yeah. Yeah, this guy is an interesting guy. Yeah, it seems like he did most of his research in the 70s but um let's look him up more have you been looking him up more yeah yeah and there was an interesting part in here about um um so there was a bigfoot book written that's i i tried to get it but it's actually hard to find (laughs) and it's called bigfoot by um Bobby Slate. Okay. And um, who was the co author? I got it right here somewhere. Yeah, it's um, Bigfoot by Bobby Slate and another person. I'll find it in a minute. And mm-hmm. um, he talks about how um, a lot of that book used his research. And used his notes, and uh, but I'm still interested in finding it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, um, Al Berry was the co-author of Bigfoot book, but um, yeah, really interesting. I'll start looking. Yeah. And you have a Rogo book coming. Oh yay! And I lost the other Rogo book. <laughs> Did you? Well, yeah, because what happened was I, there's a bookstore, I should not say the name. You're supposed to shout out to people, but it's like, I get so much good stuff. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a bookstore on Etsy called La Creepery. I, I 
they have good shit almost every day, it seems. Yeah, like. and I'm not telling you guys how to spell it. You have to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but she has really good finds yeah. on books and stuff. And um, I went, and there were two Rogos. So I'm like, I'll get you one. So I got you one. I hurry up and did that order. Yeah, so thank it's you. And then it went back a few minutes later to get me one, and it was gone. Oh, God. <laughs> I was like, damn, it's <laughs> So I got me something else. So. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> now, now I'll look up this guy, too. Yeah, Peter Gutilla. And I, I don't know if he's passed away or not. I don't know why I thought that. Maybe I thought I'd read it, but yeah, I'm not sure. Right, yeah. Yeah. Oh. But it's still in print. It's on Amazon. We'll keep a look, keep an eye out. <clears throat> Definitely. What oh, else you got? Sorry. I zoned oh, no. out. <laughs> <laughs> Night ride. As I said, you know, I was playing in a darts match over Leighton Buzzard. I left there about 20 past nine and I was driving through Stanbridge and there's a road down there called Petter's Lane, about a hundred yards past the streetlight's finish. There was a figure I saw on the left-hand side thumbing a lift down there. I pulled up in front of him so I could see him walking back into the headlights. He had a dark colored jumper on, dark colored trousers with an open white collared shirt. He came up to the motor. He got in there and sat down. He even opened the door himself. I had nothing to do with the opening of the door. I asked him where he was going, and he just pointed up the road, never said a word. So I assumed he was either going to Dunstable or Totternhoe. So I was driving up the road. I suppose I was driving for, what, four, five, six minutes, I suppose. (coughs) Sorry. Doing a speed of about 40 I turned round to offer him a cigarette and the bloke had disappeared. I bar- I braked, had a quick look in the back to see if he was there and he wasn't. And I just gripped the wheel and drove like hell. And that's all, you know? <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> sorry. The allergies, man, I'm sorry. Mm. But that was a guy he picked up, huh? Yeah. and then I got a couple little ones like um, I didn't get Lydia I should have got Lydia for you (laughs) but in South Africa on N9 Road is the Uniondale Phantom Hitchhiker a girl named Marie Charlotte Rowe who allegedly died in a road accident on a particular stretch of the N9 on April 12th, 1968, Good Friday. And in Australia, in Sydney, is believed to be haunted by a ghost of a young woman named Kelly and is said to be able to take control of vehicles that drive along the road at night. Oh, wow. That's Winkhurst Parkway. That's scary. That's a little scarier. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the Niles Canyon ghost. Um, it's about a ghost of a girl who died in a car accident. The accident is said to have taken place on February 28th with the year varying. And the ghost is said to walk the road on that day every year 
looking to hitch a ride to San Francisco. And there are many more. And then sometimes in that particular folklore, sometimes who you pick up is like a god. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like a god or goddess yeah. is the stranger that you pick up. Uh, it's funny you said that. There was a, uh, oh my God. Yeah, there, I woke up in the middle of the night last night. I had crazy dreams. Mm. Crazy, crazy dreams. And um, um, <laughs> I was, I fell asleep listening to Where Did the Road Go? And I had it on a loop. So it was going from one episode to the other. <laughs> and this guy, when I woke up, um, they were interviewing he talked about um, getting lost when he was a kid he was like 17 and um, he got lost and ended up way miles away from his hometown and um, that somebody helped him and got uh -huh. him back on the uh, a hitchhiker got him back on the right path and all that and, yeah. and he, he said there was something unusual about the guy. He said um, when it was a hitchhiker and when he picked him up, he said it was just a normal guy that had a conversation. And he said um, when he looked back at him, when the guy was getting out of the car, he said his face completely changed. Mm -hmm. And he said it stunned him. Right. Yeah, he couldn't even talk. The guy, the guy looked at him pretty intense and was like, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And got out. Right. And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, that, yeah, that's exactly. Sounds like exactly that. Um, yeah. Aspect of it. Like it could be something helpful. Yeah. And it was a time of, uh, like we talk about a time of distress. You know? Yeah. I've I've gotten lost in the woods before. Really? I have. It was just some stupid story, like where I was gonna cut through because it's you know I knew the neighborhood was on the other side. Like it was like, you know, I knew these woods are between these two areas. Whatever, I'll just cut through. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be that hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because you'll be in the woods. And if you get lost, the woods just kind of swallow you up. It's like everything yeah. looks the same. You don't know which way you came from. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I I spent so much time in the woods as a kid. I mean, yeah. practically every day. Me too. Me too. And, uh, yeah, I, I almost feel like um, some strange things probably happened to me, but I forgot. You know? Yeah, but, um, definitely. Just you know, because, just because you're a kid, and yeah, but nothing really sticks out. You know, nothing that I can remember. And uh, God, there had to be a time I got lost, but I I can't remember. Right. And there's like this moment of panic, like it's really interesting. It's like a moment of panic because you turn around and like everything looks the same. You can't yeah. navigate. 
And I'm assuming you could either freak out at the point I sat down. I sat down like, okay, I got to breathe. I got to calm down. <laughs> Me alone in the woods. Calm down. And when I did that, I sat there and I kind of tried to calm down. And, um, and a group of deer ran past at oh, that wow. moment. And I just watched where they went to. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I kind of went in that direction. And then I did end up, because, you, uh, you know, at some point you could see that you're coming to an end of woods, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I ended up, like, on the street I wanted to go to, but just way further down. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> Wow. But the woods sure were deeper than I thought they were. <laughs> wow. But it's really surreal. Like the woods, there's something different about about the woods. Oh, yeah. I used to go everywhere. Didn't even think about it, you know. Yeah. I'd end up on people's farms and uh, in creeks and yes. all kinds of stuff and just keep going, you know. You follow the creeks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I did yeah. that a lot. I'd follow the creeks. Come home all scratched up. Yeah. <laughs> <Dirty>. got anything else no i think i'm good yeah. you good yeah i don't have any recommendations or anything i, I know yeah i've been listening to a few like I, my audio drama is trying to find like i'm always listening to like a whole bunch just to see which ones i like yeah and i don't have any that i feel that way about this week yeah and then just the pollen this week oh my god yeah it's awful <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, mine's been pretty bad too i've been having to take benadryl at night that here is, and there that's what happened to me last yesterday what yeah. happens to me is like i'll have to like heavily medicate with benadryl for like days. yeah and then at some point after like days of doing that i'll wake up and, and my sinuses will be like completely dry yeah <laughs> and then i'll have this horrible headache yeah well, that's what happened to me yesterday. I was just from having a headache all day. I, I like passed out. <laughs> yeah, Benadryl is a miracle drug. I just I can't function on it. Right. I can't do anything, so I, ha I can only take it at night. And right. even then, I take half. Oh, do you? Yeah, that's how sensitive I am to it because it'll make mm -hmm. me groggy the next day if I take a whole one. Yeah, because it's a glass, yes. Yeah. I want some, like, Visine or something. Yeah. Something. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. All right. We'll be back next week. It's movie, it's movie. Movie week. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right. Bye.
Home. 